Good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. As today represents the conclusion of our preacher training camp. Starting last Sunday evening, 14 young men came to Oldham Lane to spend the week learning about the art of preaching and leadership. These 14 young men gave up part of their summer to come and work hard, to study, to spend time in preparation for a lesson that they delivered on Friday morning to each other and then tweaked and are delivering this morning at congregations around the area. Buffalo Gap, Lawn, Jim Ned Valley, of course here at Oldham Lane, and we are so proud of these young men. In years past, as some of you know, we have had a veteran group. This year was not. This year was mostly first-time students of the three or four that have been here before. They'd only been here one year prior. So you're going to hear two young men this morning that have been here before, only one year before, but did an exceptional job this week, as did all of them. But Max Thornton is an eighth grader, will be an eighth grader at Wiley East Junior High. Jarrett Ortiz will be a sophomore at Wiley, and I think you'll be very impressed with uh, the lesson that they uh, put together, and I hope that you will encourage them afterwards. I will say that these are not future preachers. They are preachers right now. And this is not the future of the church. They are the church. I will also say this. I will get ahead of a, of a comment that many of you make every year, and I love it. Many of you say, well, be careful, they're gonna take your job. Exactly, that's exactly what we are preparing them to do, is to raise up the next generation of preachers. Max, come preach the word. Good morning, church. Today, I'm going to give you the best sermon on humility you've ever heard. D.L. Moody was the most famous evangelist in the late 1800s. People came from around the world to attend his Bible conferences in Northfield, Massachusetts. One year, a large group of pastors from Europe were among the attendees. They were given rooms in the dormitory of the Bible school. And as was custom in Europe, the men put their shoes outside the door of their room, expecting them to be cleaned by the servants during the night. Of course, there were no servants in the American dorm, but as Moody was walking the halls, he saw the shoes and realized what happened. He mentioned the problem to a few of his students, none of whom wanted to help. Without another word, Moody took all of the shoes back to his room and began to clean them. Despite the praise and fame he received because of God's blessing in, on his life and ministry, Moody remained a humble man. In fact, he never told anyone of his service. If you would, please turn with me to Matthew 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the topic of my sermon today, and it's about humility. For the people who are last in life will get to enjoy the first fruits of heaven. In other words, there are only humble people in heaven. So think about that as we move throughout today's lesson. So there's this guy, I don't know if you know him, but in Numbers 12, verse three, it says he is the most humble man on the face of the earth. Do you know who I'm talking about? It's Moses, but do you know who wrote Numbers? Also Moses. I think it's kind of weird that Moses wrote Numbers and Moses called Moses the most humble man on the face of the earth. 
But God helped him write numbers. And if God says you're humble, then I think you're pretty humble. Now, how did Moses show humility? Well, he didn't let authority go over his head. When someone receives any amount of authority, his humility, or lack thereof, starts to show. Moses, on the other hand, was the opposite. He showed his humility, which made him a great leader. So Moses was in the Old Testament, but I think he was a foreshadowing of someone in the New Testament that was to come, and that person would be Jesus. If you would again turn with me to John 13, and we're going to be reading from verses 6 through 12. It states, So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I, do, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said back to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Do we understand what Jesus did for them? He washed their feet, which was about the most humble service I think you can do. Now, one of my friends that was actually in PTC this year, Ty, told me about how his mom was a missionary in Haiti. And every day, hundreds of Haitians would go down to the missionary place and get things like medicine. One day, the missionaries decided to practice Jesus' humility by washing everybody's feet. Now, I don't want to put a weird image in your mind, but for the sake of today's lesson, I'm going to. Think. Think about how our feet are in America. There's maybe a couple calluses, maybe your toenails are a bit long. But let's think about what the Haitians' feet might look like. Can't picture it? I'll tell you. The Haitians walk around barefoot all over the place. Most of them don't even have shoes. So there would be calluses all over their feet. Thorns and stickers all in their feet. Their toenails haven't been clipped in what seems like forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to wash somebody's feet that looks like that. That is, until I humble myself. If I think about their needs and not my own selfish thoughts, then I can act more like Jesus. As I've said, a way that we can be more humble is by serving people, being a servant. A long time ago, our family, usually me, my dad, and a sibling or two, would go to an old, folks, an old folks home. On Wednesdays and Sundays, we would almost always go over there and perform a mini church service. We would sing songs, take communion, pray, and even deliver a message. Sometimes we would even watch sermons that Chris had taught a few years back. After, we would stay and have fellowship. We would go around to the residents and we would talk about their their lives, their kids, their time spent in the military or Air Force, or just how blessed they were to have come to Jesus. And that's just a few of the things we talked about the many years we went there. There was one old man in particular that started it all, though, and his name was Wentz. 
I don't know about you, but um, for, I don't remember much about Wentz, but what I do remember was wonderful. He would tell the most amazing stories, have the coolest and most meaningful conversations with us, and he was just a really great guy in general. But one Sunday, or before one Sunday, we heard news that Wentz had fallen asleep and didn't wake back up. That was hard on all of us for a little bit, but, and it discouraged us. But after a month or two, we started coming back and having church service there. Serving that community might have, been the ha might have made me the happiest I've been in my life. Seeing so many smiles after a service like that was so contagious that I probably had just as big of a smile. Now, many of you have heard of a non-biblical story with the same kind of message I'm preaching right now, and that is the story of the tortoise and the hare. As the story goes, there was a hare in the forest that nobody could beat, nobody in the whole forest. As a result of never losing, the hare became cocky and arrogant. After a while, a tortoise came up and challenged the hare to a race. The hare was baffled, but he agreed anyways to race the hare, to race the tortoise. At the beginning of the race, the hare ran off, but the tortoise walked step by step through the race. And as you all know, the hare became even more cocky and took many stops and even took a nap. But that didn't turn out well for the hare, did it? As the tortoise trudged through the race, he caught up to the hare and even passed him. When the hare finally woke up, the tortoise was feet away from the finish line. The hare tried his best to catch back up, but he didn't make it in time. The tortoise had just became the first animal to beat the ignorant, arrogant, and cocky hare. In the same way, arrogance and cockiness may seem right in the moment, but humility always works out in the end. Humility ultimately wins. As I said earlier, the first will be last and the last will be first. Being humble, in turn, leads you to put Jesus first. Let's say that you play with your friends all the time and you never have time to pray, or to pray or study God's word. Oh, I'm busy playing basketball, or I'm busy with schoolwork. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it sure does to me. For you, it might be that you think you're too busy with work or family time, but let's read what the Bible says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is humility. Loving your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is one of the most humble things you can do. Now, starting today, I challenge you to start being more humble. It's summer, so you have a lot more time on your hands. But if you're mad at someone, if they're frustrating you, be more humble. The feeling that you would be feeling is exactly how God feels about us. Because you, we, have all messed up so many times. But as it turns out, God still loves, loves us. God still cares for us and wants what's best for us. So before you do something that is not loving to that person, think about that. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Thank you.
Wow, Max, that was very humble of you. Um, good morning. My name is Jared Ortiz, and I'm from here at Oldham Lane. And me and Max both have been working very hard this week. Uh, we've been working and studying on our lessons, and I hope that you can use this lesson in your life to grow and become better disciples of Christ. Now, most of you have heard of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I want you to think of one. Think of one while I read this passage, because one in particular applies to it. But real quick, before I go into the passage, I would like to give you a little of the context of the when and the why it was written. So this passage comes from Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. He was giving some new commandments, because if you look at the old law, it's very harsh. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But he was showing some of his grace. He was making the laws more forgiving. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to, give, to go one mile with him, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Okay, you should have a fruit in mind. The one that I felt that was the most relevant in this passage is self-control. You see, we don't get to treat people how we feel like treating them. We, treat we have to use that self-control to treat people how Jesus would treat them. So self-control is key to what we'll be talking about this morning, even though we're not going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's self-control. The fruit of self-control is key. So looking back at verse 39, as it says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So how many of you have ever been in a situation like that, where someone did something to you like that, and it hurt you? I know I have, many times. Most recently, I was at a birthday party. We're seeing karaoke. My friend walks up to me, and she slaps me dead in the face. Now, I know it was a joke, because we were joking around. We laughed it off later, but... What about when it's not a joke? What do you do? How do you react? Well, it can be hard to do nothing when something like that happens. It doesn't matter if it's over here, someone does something, you get a little annoyed, to over here, someone does something to you, you're ready to jump in the ring with them. It takes so much self-control to be able to keep yourself tied down in those situations. So I think that one of the greatest examples of self-control in the Bible is Moses. So as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24, it reads, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had self-control there. He was being offered a position of great power where he would have everything handed directly to him. The finest clothing, the finest foods, the most comfortable life he could imagine back then. But yet he chose a hard life with God's people because he knew that it was right. And most of us would not be able to do that. To emphasize a little bit more the importance of self-control, if you would turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 4, I'll be starting, or chapter 1, starting in verse 4. It reads, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. I'm going to pause there. But let me read verse 4 again and pay attention to verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Self-control is a part of that. It, self-control affects so much more than just our earthly relationships with each, other, with each other, just how we treat each other. It helps keep us from sin, and it helps us get closer to the reward. So Moses may have been a good example, but let's talk about Jesus. So how many of you have heard the phrase, what would Jesus do? So if we think about it, Jesus has been through so much more suffering than we have ever been through and most likely ever will go through. If we look in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Jesus had such self-control. Most of us would not be silent. I know personally, in that situation, I would not be silent. And that's not a good thing. We have to use that self-control to be more like Jesus. We have to think about Are we going to fight back? Are we going to be like Jesus and act like as it is said that Jesus did, like a lamb that is being led to silent before his shearers? And it is so hard to comprehend doing nothing, but yet Jesus did do nothing. And then, well, some might wonder, well, that would never happen to me. I would never get in a situation like that. But first of all, you might. It happened to Jesus by men. We live in a world of men. It could happen. And secondly, and I think more importantly, because Jesus tells us so many times in Scripture that we need to worry about it. Like I said earlier, self-control goes for so much more than just our relationships with other people. It helps keep us from sin. Now, Moses may have been a good example, but Jesus is the greatest example of self-control in our entire world's history. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Clara Barton? She's the founder of the American Red Cross. And one day, she decided to make a pledge that she was never going to hold a grudge against someone that did something to her that hurt her. And so a while later, someone came back and asked her about it. They said, do you remember a time when someone did something that hurt you? And then she clearly stated, no. I distinctly remember forgetting that. (laughs) We all need to be a little bit more like Clara Barton sometimes. Now, on that note, I would like to ask you to do something. If someone has done something to you and it hurt you, no matter if it was a physical thing or a mental thing, no matter how bad it was, I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them, hey, what you did hurt me, but I forgive you. And I want to fix this. And then ask them this question. Will you help me fix it? And I know it is hard. 
but it is so worth it to do that. Now, if there are any of you, if there are any of you who would like the prayers of this church, or if you need that help to have that self-control, because we all struggle with it, we are all here to help you. Or if you have been studying and would like to put on Christ in baptism, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.